lift our voices together as a community of believers, isn't it? I look forward to that every Sunday morning to uh, be together and to uh, share together in our wonderful worship experiences. As I begin my message today, I once again would like to pray and ask the Lord to uh, give us his grace and guidance as we study his word. Father in heaven, thank you now for the privilege we have of opening the word of God together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use the word that you inspired, that you would um, touch the hearts to whom you've given life, and that uh, your word would take root and grow and produce fruit that lasts. Lord, anything that's not from you, please protect us, but that which is from you, use it for your glory that you may be honored, that Jesus may be lifted up. And Lord, that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, if you were to ask the person sitting next to you, what is the underlying theme of most popular music? What do you think they'd say? Why don't you ask them? What, what do you think is the most underlying theme of popular music? You know, think of, you know, think of my generation, you know. Um, think of uh, the 60s. Think of the 40s. Think of the 80s. And then what's the underlying? Isn't it love? You know, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. You know, you can hear you can hear Frank Sinatra singing about love. You know, you can hear the Beatles. You can hear, you know, all of the contemporary groups. You know, Michael Bublé. You know, <laughs> they all sing about love. Um, and you know, I think the Bible tells us that the central thought about life is love. Uh, and I'll prove it to you. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint with one another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. That kind of covers everything, doesn't it? All those themes that Paul says, this is what it means to be a Christian. And then look at the last verse. Above all, put on love. Why? Because it brings everything together. Love binds all things together. And so this morning, as we think about the theme of the fourth Advent Sunday, uh, which is love, uh, I'd like to talk about the fact that love brings peace, hope, and joy, and all the themes of Christmas together. And to do that, I'd like to turn to Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bibles in the, in the pocket before you, it's page 785. And I'd like to read verses 1 through 10. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I think a person, the reason why love is the fourth theme of Advent is because love brings together the other three. The other three are found in the first five verses of this passage. Verses 1 and 2 talk about peace. We discuss peace with God uh, as we talked about what the angels said uh, to the shepherds, um, glory to God in the highest and peace uh, of God on those to whom he is well pleased. Um, Then there's hope, verse 3. Uh, Our hope is the glory of God, and uh, we put our hand in God's hand. Uh, We know that we have uh, a hope of of certain promise in heaven. Um, You know, that the text reminds us that even in our suffering, our suffering uh, reinforces the fact that there is hope beyond it, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And then in verses 3 and 4, we rejoice in that hope. We have joy, even in our sufferings. Um, Probably will not fade away through our circumstances, because that's his happiness. But joy will remain through our experiences in this life. So we know that hope, and we know that peace, and we know that joy are found to us in the gospel. And then look at verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. That's why we have peace and hope and joy. Because God's love has been poured. God's love brings it all together. Love does bring the world together. The truth that God is a God of love, the way that God loved us in the past, and that love has been poured out to us. Now, has been poured out to us. I hope your translation says that. Because that's the idea of that verb. Has been poured out. Something happened in the past, and this particular verb says that the consequences of that past action continue on into the future indefinitely. So God did something in the past, and because he did something in the past that is finished, The consequences of that action continue on into the future indefinitely. And that thing that he did is he poured out his love. It happened in the past, and it's just like the interest in an IRA. You know, you put your money in, hopefully it continues into the future to gain interest. Um, That's what God's love has done. 
So the Bible tells us that everything we have in Christ uh, has been given to us through his love. And that shows that God is a God of love. Now that's the good news. Good news is all because God is a God of love. The love of God holds everything together. But for some who hear that message of God is a God of love, they've got a question about that. And maybe you, from time to time, have a question that says, well, if God is a God of love, he's got a pretty funny way of showing it. Have you ever felt, felt that? Because sometimes stuff comes into our lives that it doesn't sound like God is a God of love when this happens to me. One pastor who loves to survey uh, non-Christian people in New York City surveyed one person and asked him about whether he thought God was a God of love. And here's what this person said, quote, This isn't a philosophical issue to me. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does exist, he can't be trusted. You see, that's what a person from the outside of Christian circles might be tempted to think. Because they look around the world and they see evil and pain and suffering and hardship. And they say, well, if God is all-powerful, he must not be a God of love. Because if he was all-powerful, he'd fix this. Or they might say, well, if he is a God of love, he certainly isn't all-powerful because he doesn't fix this. And this has been a philosophical quandary for centuries. How do you reconcile the hardships and the suffering and the evil in this world with this idea of love? And then there's people in our culture who look at Christians And they see we Christians sometimes don't really act in a very loving way. That's why I'm really thankful that uh, people don't see the gospel from my life. Because if they were looking for the gospel in my life, they'd see it sometimes. And then sometimes they wouldn't because I'm a sinner. The gospel is the good news of Jesus in his life, not mine. But sometimes people are looking into the Christian life and they say, show me and prove to me that God is a God of love by the way you live. Well, I try to live a life worthy of the gospel, but when I fail, this is what, I, this is what people see sometimes. They see a person who might not be very loving towards the diverse people in our culture. Sometimes we're not loving to the homosexual community. Sometimes there's a injustice that we don't ever say anything about to the poor and the marginalized in our culture. And sometimes there are things that happen in our culture um, that people outside say, well, if God is such a God of love and if you are such a person who follows, why don't you do something? Well, if that's you, if you're going through a hardship or a difficulty right now, This is a hard question. And, by the way, 
a person who is going through hardship and difficulty, they don't need theological answers, which we're going to discuss. What they need is compassion. They need someone to come around and put their arms around them and sometimes maybe not even say anything, (laughs) you know. They need someone to care. They need someone to reach out to them. Um, And if that's you today, I hope you'll be patient with uh, our concept from Romans 5 today. But the questions remain, and they should be addressed. They need to be addressed. So as we think about this idea of can we really speak of the love of God at Christmas in a culture such as ours with all the questions and all the things that are going on? Can we really talk about the fact that God is a God of love? Well, I'd like to suggest to you this main thought, and we've already alluded to it in our worship time this morning, and that is this. God demonstrated that he is a God of love in the cross. And that word demonstrated means more like he proved. (laughs) He proved that he is a God of love in the cross. See, the birth of Jesus is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the end of the story. There would be no end without a beginning, and it's the end of the story that brings the solution, and it's found in verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't just philosophize. He came down and he lived among us as a person. We're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, tomorrow evening at Christmas Eve. So I encourage you to come and bring your family and friends. And we'll talk about how, how God has, has done something just completely impossible by remaining God and yet living as a man on this earth. And he did it because he loves us. He experienced life with us. And as he acted, he presented evidence that maintains Christian integrity when we suggest that God is a God of love. So what did he do? What is the demonstration that God is a God of love? I'd like to give you three truths from verses 5 through 11 that demonstrate that God is a God of love. First, the love of God is a gift of grace. Verse 5 of our text says, God gave his son and the son gave himself for us. He gave. It's a gift. So let's talk about this gift of giving. God gave his love. Think about giving for a moment. Giving is different from paying a debt, satisfying an obligation. Giving is different from pleasing a superior or someone we want to impress. Giving is different from investing, where we gain a return from our efforts. These are all self-centered actions. Their ends are a means to our own advantage. Real giving is apart from obligation, right? 
Real giving is expecting nothing in return. Real giving comes from a heart of love. When you give a gift, you give just because. Because I love you. And when God gave his son, and when Jesus gave himself, there was no obligation. He is God. He owes no one anything. He laid nothing to impress. (laughs) How do you need to impress anyone when you're God? And uh, he expected nothing in return because he already has everything. Talk about a hard person to shop for at Christmas. (laughs) He makes a gift of love. But also I want you to know that this is a gift of grace. Uh, Grace means giving something that you that uh, you don't deserve. And we don't deserve this gift of love. Nobody deserves this gift of love. And Paul gives us four reasons why no one deserves this gift of love in this text. First verse 8, we're all sinners. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We fall short. We cross a line. We misuse evil for, or we mis, misuse good for evil. We deceive people. And then there's this whole area of the spirit of, of love, of, of the law. Not just, uh, that we don't get angry, uh, murder, but that we don't, we can't even get angry with people. Not that we don't commit adultery, we can't even look inappropriately on another person. It's not just that we don't steal, we can't even envy. And so all of these things make us such sinful people, we think, but yet God gave us this gift. We certainly don't deserve it. It's got to be of grace. Then look at verse 6. We are ungodly. This is rebellion. This is irreverence for God, shaking our fist at God. God, you are a tyrant. Uh, I just got done reading a book uh, about the Old Testament and, and dealing with some of the moral dilemmas in the Old Testament. It's called, Is God a Moral Monster? And Boy, it's easy to think that when you read some of the things in the Old Testament. But that just shows that our pride, that we know better than God. It's living our lives as though God doesn't exist and we are our own God. We are ungodly people. Then verse 6 tells us that we are powerless. Now, most of the time, um, people don't realize that we are sinners and ungodly people. But even if we did realize it, we couldn't do anything about it. (laughs) In our own strength, and our own power, we would be totally powerless to do anything to solve that problem. And then verse 10 tells us we were enemies. (sighs) Enemies. For while we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. If I were going to pick some friends, I'd, I'd start with nice guys. You know, I'd start with you. <laughs> you know, I'd start with people that um, I thought I had something in common with or I could have a potential uh, friendship with. You know, people that did the same things as me, see people who had the same interests as me. I, that's who I'd want to develop a friendship with. Possibly somebody that I might, I might even die for some of my friends, you know. Greater love is no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. 
You've often heard stories of soldiers diving on hand grenades to save his, his people in his platoon. Maybe some of you who served in the military know what it's like to give the ultimate sacrifice for your comrades and for your country. You see, that's where I would go to try to make friends. Enemies? Man, I, I wouldn't want to go to somebody who was an enemy that was trying to kill me and try to make them my friend. But that's what Jesus did. That's what God did. Worse, he submitted himself to crucifixion for his enemies. Wow. Nobody deserves this gift. The love of God expressed in the birth, life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is a love gift from God of grace. And that addresses some of the questions that our culture is asking. And by the way, you'll never argue somebody into the kingdom. You know, sometimes I worry that you know, we get really good at philosophy and we can out-philosophize uh, skeptics. And you know, all that does is embarrass them. And I think we need to be careful of that. But for us, it's important for us to have peace in our own hearts so that we can feel secure and confident in our faith. So that's why it's important to know these things. But be careful with all the philosophizing that we have at our disposal. But think through very carefully here at Christmas time. Oh, this, this love gift that God has given to us in that precious little baby, Jesus. Secondly, I want you to know that the love of God is priceless. Priceless. Now, God's love is priceless all by itself. Here are some passages of Scripture. Just think with these passages of Scripture. Think about, think about the priceless person in that manger, the value of this person. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. What a, what a valuable person is laying in that manger. Colossians 1, he's the son, is the image of the invisible God. Do you believe that's who was there? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that doesn't mean he was born first before anybody else. It means that he is preeminent over. That's what the word firstborn means. He's preeminent over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That straw that he was laying on, he created it. (laughs) Think how valuable and priceless is this child laying in the manger. And then John 1 For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. He exegeted the world. 
think of how think of how priceless this child is. And yet God gave him to us. But think through this. God's love is even more priceless because the giver is God. Have you ever seen that reality show on TV, Pawn Stars? Anyone ever watched that? Rick Harrison and his crazy laugh and the old man and all that. Well, imagine someone coming in and saying, I've got a Civil War replica revolver. And I would like to sell it to you for $1,000. And they say, well, just, I mean, there were hundreds and thousands of those Civil War replica revolvers. It's not worth $1,000. And the guy gets a smile on his face and says, yeah, but this one was Ulysses S. Grant's revolver. Whoa, well, now that we know who owned it, now it's more valuable, right? Who gave this precious, priceless baby in the manger? God gave this priceless baby in the manger. The value of something depends on who owns it and who gives it. And this is the profound truth. Not only is the gift itself valuable, but the gift is more valuable because of who gave it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Wow. What an incredible, loving God we have. Third, verses 9 and 10 tell us the love of God is intensely personal. Think back to this person in New York City that says, well, now this is getting personal. And so we can come back and say, okay, you want to get personal? Let's get personal. Those who observe Christians acting in ways that appear unloving take that personally, and God then works in our lives and changes us personally. See, the love of God is that which deals with us individually from the inside and personally changes us. It is a personal proposition. God's love changes all things. The rules are different. Here are the rules. Number one, we used to be personal objects of God's wrath. Now, because of God's love, we are saved by his love. Imagine the strongest action possible, powerful hurricanes that last for five days and dump 25 or 50 inches of rain. Or imagine a lightning bolt that burns down a house. Imagine the raging floodwaters of a tsunami that topples everything in its path. Imagine the forest fire that burns hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres and entire communities are wiped out because of a forest fire. Now multiply that by a thousand times. That's the wrath of God. That's the wrath of God against sin. And you know what the love of God has done? The love of God has dealt with the wrath of God. The love of God has rescued us. The Bible says that apart from Christ, we are objects of that 
wrath. Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in love, rescued us from the wrath of God. And when the Lamb's book of life is full, his wrath will be unleashed, but not against us. It will be unleashed against the world that shakes its fist at God in rebellion, even after a thousand years of total peace on this earth. Because of the love of God, we who place our trust in Jesus are saved from that wrath. And that's personal. That's a personal thing. Second thing, we used to have no life. We used to be totally lifeless before God. Now we have new life. Look at verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we talked about his ministry to us last week. He's been given to each of us when we are born again. And then onward uh, in our Christian lives, we experience the love of God by having him fill us. And so he gives us that gift of peace and the precious peace and that precious love and, and the renewal that we have in him. We used to have no life. Now we have new life. And thirdly, we, now ha- we used to have no relationship with God, but now we have a relationship with God and his family. Now think of this. Verse 10 and 11 tells us that we are reconciled to himself. Now we are the friends of God. Now we are adopted into God's family. Now we are heirs to all of the riches that God could ever give to us. We now have relationships with one another. So here's the personal answer to the question posed to those who might say that God is not a God of love. We experience a personal relationship with God and we have relationships with one another in the local body. And here's where we have to really be careful because, you know, sometimes the church isn't perfect. You ever met a perfect church? Is this, I've only been here for two weeks. Is, is this a perfect church? It seems like it for the first two weeks. Um, I, I, I have a tendency to believe that I'm going to find otherwise <laughs> the longer that I'm here. Mostly because I just joined, so now it's imperfect. Why do we still work at this thing called the church? Why do we put in all this effort into the church? Why do we put up with all the hassles and the difficulties and the hardships that it caused working with other uh, people in the church? Well, guess how God decided to win the world to Christ? He planted churches. He planted churches. Churches is the way God decided to win the world. And he wins the world when churches learn how to love one another. And when we learn how to love one another, over 40 times in the New Testament, the Bible gives us one another commands. Love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, care for one another, show compassion. All these one another things. Why did God do that? Because one another is where it's at in the church. And we need to work at that. And we need to, we need to develop that one another aspect in the local church. And boy, do I see that in the first two weeks that I've been here. Wow, 
this congregation loves and serves one another. But we must not ever keep that love to ourselves. And so God says to churches, give it away. I, I experienced Fun Club for the first time this week. Wow. What a fun thing. This is fun. <laughs> Pun not intended, but it really works, doesn't it? What a fun experience that was to see all these children coming and, and how people would, would uh, share the gospel. And we had this cake that had different layers of the wordless book in it. It's awesome. <laughs> Giving it away. But, but not only do we want to get people to come to us, we want to go to them. So let's think and strategize how we might be able to mobilize the incredible resources that we have here to give that love of God away to our community, and even go around the world. So I ask you, is God a God of love? All right. God's a God of love, a skeptic might say. But I still hurt. I'm still lonely. I'm still going through difficulty. I still have questions about this entire Christian thing. I still have questions about the church. Well, I understand that. So we must be humble as we relate to our culture. But we must also model loving grace to our culture. And for those of you who are here today struggling with the realities of life, I encourage you to meditate on the candles and their themes. Put your hand in the hand of God and hope in him. Hope in God. Meditate on the peace that is yours because his favor, his salvation rests on you. Receive the freshness of joy that the Holy Spirit gives to us when we come to him and ask him to freshly fill us with his joy. And then know that Christmas love brings it all together. May God's love be the theme that draws your Christmas celebration together this week. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, uh, so often in, in church on Christmas we hear little sermonettes on, uh, on the star and upon the shepherds and upon the meaning of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And that's okay, but Lord, sermonettes are for Christianettes. And Lord, we want to get deep into what you have for us in Christ. And that's what I've been trying to do over these last three weeks as we've, we've thought about the deep implications of the Christmas initiative that you have reached out to us to give us in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those who are in need today of more than theological truth. They need a hug. They need someone to bring them a meal and give them some candy or come alongside of them and cry with them and just say nothing. I pray you'd help us to do that as well. Make us people who are so overwhelmed and full of your love that we spill over 
to other believers in the church as well as to our culture. And Lord, it's out of gratitude for what love, that love that you've poured into our hearts, that we love you back, that we worship you back, that we serve you back, that we sacrifice for you. Help us to live lives worthy of the love that you have first given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.